reading from Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went to report and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have done had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's always an encouraging thing when you get up here and then your notes just completely disappear. <laughs> Bear with me one second. Thank you. Thank you very much. I found them. We're good. All right. Well, this week is the first week of what is going to be a several week series on forgiveness. Um, there was a, a tweet that I read a few years back and it was an unpopular tweet. Um, some of you are shocked, I'm sure. It's like, is there such a thing as an unpopular tweet? Well, this, this one was. Uh, it was by a woman named Elizabeth Brunig, who is a journalist uh, for the New York Times and just a, a thoughtful human being. And she was looking at uh, events happening in our country and, and made the comment, there's something unsustainable about a, about a, a, a society that requires continual acts of atonement without the possibility of forgiveness. And that was an unpopular tweet. And it was an unpopular tweet because we have lost respect for forgiveness. We have lost sight of the value of forgiveness. But friends, that is unsustainable. It's unsustainable emotionally, it's unsustainable physically, and it is certainly, and perhaps most importantly, unsustainable biblically. So, over the course of the next several weeks together, we are going to be unpacking the idea of forgiveness, the reality that we are forgiven people and that the gospel, through what we receive, enables us to forgive others. So we're looking forward to that, and we're going to begin uh, by looking first at, at how not to forgive 
based on the parable that was just read. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we're going to go ahead and jump in. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of forgiveness. We thank you for the fact that you have called us, that you have made us your own, that you continually give us what we don't deserve, that being grace and mercy. And so, Lord, we pray that the Spirit, as we engage with your word this morning, would apply your grace and your mercy to our hearts. Help us to learn from your word. Help us to be encouraged by it. And God, help us to, to practice it. We love you, and it is in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, during the church egg hunt, uh, last week was Easter, we had an egg hunt to celebrate for the little ones, uh, something very sweet took place, and you might be thinking, well, it's an egg hunt, the whole thing was sweet. True, but in addition to the general sweetness of the egg hunt, there, there was um, an added layer. Uh, so Jackie, our children's director, worked very hard, stuffed hundreds of eggs, laid them all out in the field, and um, let the kids have at it. But she, she was wise in the way that she did it. Uh, she didn't just let all of the kids run all at once. She let the little ones go first. And one of those little ones was mine, uh, my three-year-old daughter, Harper. And Harper was very excited, but not very experienced, and would go out and... and uh, in the first five minutes of the egg hunt, instead of like grabbing an egg and putting it in her basket and grabbing another egg and, and filling her basket, she grabbed an egg, got so excited that she just sat down and opened the egg. <laughs> and we tried to encourage her, Harper, go, go, get, go get more eggs. And eventually she listened and she picked up one more egg, sat down and opened it. And so at the end of this egg hunt, which again had hundreds of eggs, Harper had two eggs. Well, there was another older girl who saw Harper's you know, dearth of eggs and looked at her abundance of eggs and came over to Harper and said, you can have some of mine, which is very sweet. And then soon thereafter, another older girl saw Harper's eggs and said, oh, you can have some of mine too. And it was, it was heartwarming, it was lovely, and it got better. Because Harper then walked a little bit farther and she saw a little boy who didn't have any eggs uh, because he was too little to participate in the egg hunt and she walked up to him and gave him some of her eggs. And you just see the, the love get passed from one person to the next. It's very sweet. But I think it is also a picture of the ways that God's gifts ought to play out in our lives. We receive blessings from him, and when we receive and internalize those blessings, we in turn ought to bless others. And the way that the Bible talks about this, I don't think that we can break those actions into two clean, separate categories. Like we receive and then, separate from that, we, we think real hard, we work real hard, and then we give back. No, the giving back is part of the gift working itself out. And when that doesn't happen, right, when we see someone receive abundantly and then just sit on it, we say that something is broken, that something is not right. 
And Jesus makes that point here in Matthew by telling us the parable of the unforgiving servant. As we see when we dig into this passage, Jesus tells what's ultimately a ridiculous story with the intention of showing us how ridiculous it is for us who have received so radically from him to be withholding towards others. And what is it that we have received so radically? Forgiveness. So let's go ahead and dig into this passage and and see what Jesus has to teach us from it. Our text begins with a question, a question from Peter. And this question is posed in verse 21. There Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, what's the thing that is on Peter's mind here? Well, the thing that is on Peter's mind is forgiveness. See, our text here follows a teaching from Jesus on church discipline. Jesus is realistic. See, when Jesus calls people to himself, he doesn't simply call us as individuals. No, he calls us into a body. He calls us into his body. He calls us to be part of the church. And who is it that he calls? The righteous? (laughs) Nope. He calls sinners. Jesus specifically says that in Matthew chapter 9. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So that means that if you are in this room, if you have been called by Jesus, what are you? You are a sinner. See, and that is step one of belonging to Jesus, recognizing who you are apart from him. But in Christ, that's not a title that we have to run away from because sinners are the exact people that Jesus is after. See, for us to run away from Jesus because we've been called sinners would be akin to people who have been diagnosed with leukemia running away from radiologists because they've been called cancer patients. Jesus is the great physician, and as such, he has the cure for our primary ailment, that being sin. So Jesus goes on about his work even today, calling sinners and then telling them to live together Nothing messy could come of that, right? No, it is sweet, it is amazing, it is hopeful, but it is very messy. Because while we are a new creation in Christ, while the Spirit is at work in our hearts, helping us to be what we are, sin in this life will never be entirely eradicated. So as sinners in the church trying to do life together, what is going to happen? Well, Friends, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to hurt each other. So in the passage leading up to ours, Jesus is practical. He is realistic. He gives us parameters. He gives us tools to help us when that inevitably happens. But Peter, knowing Jesus and knowing that the end goal isn't simply to to have a clean system of, of handling issues when they arise, Now, he knows that the end goal is forgiveness, and so he asks a very reasonable question. How many times do I have to forgive people when they have wronged me? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Have you ever been in a position where someone has wronged you, asked for forgiveness, you extended it only to be wronged in the exact same way later on. I think we all have. 
Can you imagine doing that seven times? That is hurtful, that is demoralizing, that is hard. And Peter likely thinks, in, in giving the number seven, he thinks he is being so generous. Again, seven times is hard to imagine. And according to rabbinic teaching, he was only, he was only required to offer forgiveness three times. So again, he's being like super gracious. He's doubling what the, what the previous requirement was and then adding one to give this whole complete number, seven. But what is Jesus' response? Well, let's look at Jesus' answer in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. <laughs> what? 77 times? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is using intentionally the language of Genesis 4.24 to make a point. See, in Genesis 4, we are introduced to a not-so-good guy named Lamech. And he sang a song of praise to himself, which is, you know, a bad sign. And in this song of praise to himself, we see this line. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, Jesus is teaching us and his disciples here that mercy and forgiveness ought to characterize our lives together. Lamech, who is evil, boasts about inflicting revenge seventy-sevenfold. But our good teacher, Jesus, says that we need to offer mercy and forgiveness seventy-sevenfold. And that number 77 or 77-fold is understood and translated by some as 70, or 70 times 7, which, if I did my math correctly earlier, is 490 times. So some scholars think that Jesus' answer to the question, how many times should we forgive, is actually 490. But to try to determine the specific number is to miss the point. What is Jesus' answer? That we are to offer unlimited forgiveness. And to explain why, Jesus gives us a parable. So let's go ahead and look at the parable. Starting in verse 23 through 24, starting in verse 23, Jesus tells us a story. So I'm going to read the first two verses of that. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, so our story begins with a king who is looking to settle his accounts. And one of those accounts is with a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. What is a talent? Well, in Jesus' time, a talent was a monetary unit, though not an actual coin, which would have been valued at 6,000 drachmas, which was the equivalent of 20 years' wages. So one talent is 20 years' wages. This servant owes the king 10,000 talents. And again, I'm doing math twice in one sermon. It's amazing. If I'm doing my math properly, that means that it's 200,000 years wages. 
According to another scholar, it would be equivalent today to $400 billion. That is what this one servant owes the king. Okay, so the king is settling debts. A servant has been brought to him who owes him $400 billion, which again would take him about 200,000 years to earn. And we read in the next verse, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. This would have been the most common way to handle a debt in the ancient world. And we shouldn't read the word sold and, and input our, our own history with, um, with race-based chattel slavery onto this. What this is more akin to would be uh, indentured servanthood with the intention of paying off a debt. And because this man will not live long enough to pay off 200,000 years worth of debt, then his whole family becomes responsible. And, and again, the combined efforts of his entire family will not even begin to make a scratch in that dent. Because you want scratches on your debt, on your dents. Debt. All right. So what does the servant do looking at this insurmountable debt that he owes? He does the only thing that he can do. He falls on his knees and implores the king, have patience with me. Good so far. And I will pay you everything? It's an interesting move. Uh, there's some good elements here, right? The servant falls on his knees and he implores the king for mercy. The right thing to do. In fact, the only thing that he can do. He's doing great until he opens his mouth. Right? I'll pay you the whole debt. No, no, you won't. It is literally impossible for this person to pay 200,000 years worth of debt, $400 billion. It is absurd. It is absurd the amount that this man owes, and it is absurd the idea that he thinks that he can pay it back. But that's the point. And what we're meant to see is that in this parable, we are all that servant. Our sin has created a debt, a debt that we cannot even begin in to imagine the scope of. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I haven't done anything that bad. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I haven't stolen anything too big. And good, that, that's good. Please continue on in, in not doing those things. But friends, that's a pretty low bar. And when someone says something along those lines, typically they're not looking deeply enough. Uh, I, I, have an, I have an ethics degree. Please don't go to sleep. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go too, too deep into that. But, but when I was pursuing that degree, um, I had to read a fair amount of a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And something that Kant was well known for was his uh, categorical imperative, which can be summarized as, act only in such a way that you would want to become a universal law. So in every situation, what he's saying is that we should, before acting, consider, would I want my actions here to become a universal law to be replicated by every single other person in this exact scenario? And if you're very like, self-confident, you might say, yeah, absolutely. Um, you shouldn't, though. 
the reason is, uh, if, you, if you think about you know, situations that, that you face on a day-to-day basis, uh, let's say you are presented with a situation where it is more convenient to lie. And if you do, according to Kant's categorical imperative, what you are saying, if you, if you give in in that scenario, what you're saying is that it's okay to lie. And you might be thinking, well, there are some situations where it is far easier to lie, but if we're saying this is, this is an okay thing to do and to replicate and, and to pass on, what does that do to trust in our society? If lying becomes viewed as an acceptable thing, then how can you take anyone at their word? Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all told the truth? Now, full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of Kant, and uh, partly because he's terrible to read, um, but that's okay. And, and I think there are some holes with the categorical imperative, and I'd be happy to talk to you about those after the service. I won't go any deeper into that. But one of the things that I think is helpful about that principle is that it forces you to think about the larger consequences of seemingly insignificant actions. See, things that may seem small, things that we do on a daily basis, little things, are actually normalizing behaviors that are destructive. And when you stop to really examine your life, Examine your thought life. Think, away, think about the way that you speak about and to other people. If you're honest, you will likely find all sorts of destructive things that either could have or actually have really hurt other people. I think we'll all find that we have contributed to, to things that are deeply problematic things that can't be undone, especially not by a few good deeds. Our sin has created a debt that would take many more lifetimes than we have to pay off. So the plea, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, even if well-intentioned. That plea is ridiculous. Thankfully, the story does not end there, right? Could you imagine, like, End of the story. Hope you enjoyed church. I'll see you later. Now, the Bible confronts us with the difficult reality, a reality that we all know, that, that we've been carrying around within us, right? that we have missed the mark, that we have failed big time, that we've got a debt that we cannot pay. It confronts us with that reality so that the amazing grace of God can be highlighted. Our story continues. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 400 billion dollars worth of debt. Gone. Now, in the the life of the story, I mean, just think about the implications of that. Here we have a king with a servant who owes him $400 billion, more than the gross national products of 80% of the countries in the world. This man obviously cannot pay. But what does the king do? He forgave him the debt. 
that would have been an act that would have destabilized any kingdom. Now, a question worth considering is what happens to the debt? $400 billion doesn't just disappear, not at all. No, instead, the king out of grace has decided to absorb the cost himself so that his servant wouldn't have to. And I think this reality shows us an important element of forgiveness. The pastor Tim Keller writes, Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. And he says that you, you can think of it this way. If you have a car that you lend to a friend and the friend is reckless with your vehicle and he crashes it and totals it, you may say, I forgive you. And that would be a very gracious thing to do. But what happens to the cost of that car? It doesn't disappear. Either you go and buy yourself a new car or you live without that car. Either way, you absorb a tremendous cost. This king in announcing the cancellation of his servant's debt is saying, this enormous sum, this sum that has the ability to destabilize my kingdom, I will pay. And what Jesus is doing here is he is preparing us for his own work. See, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what does this mean? It means that that weight that you have been carrying around, that debt that feels crushing. Well, it is. It is crushing. But God, out of love for you, was willing to take that on himself. Jesus, who is our king, was, according to Isaiah, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, in the gospel, Jesus looks at you and says, I will absorb the cost. I will carry the weight. I will bear your burden. That weight is real, but here, let me take it for you. Uh, think for a minute. Like, have you ever been released from a debt? And think about the feeling that comes with that. Even if you were the one that paid it off, the fact that it's no longer over you. I remember the, the very last student, student debt payment I made and just the, the relief that came from that. I felt like I could breathe again. Well, this, on a much grander scale, through no effort on our own, is what is offered to us in the gospel. Forgiveness the release of debts, the ability to breathe. This is what the king offers his servant. Well, our story continues. In verse 28, we read, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, 
He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this servant, who has just been released from 200,000 years worth of wages, goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. And you might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, 100 denarii wasn't nothing. It was akin to about 20 weeks of pay at the time. So in today's terms, it would have been about $12,000. So again, that's a, that's, that's a debt. That's a significant amount of money. But to put things in perspective, it amounted to about one six hundred thousandth of the debt owed by the first servant. Well, the second servant pleaded, uh, have patience with me and I will pay you. See, this, this assurance from the second servant, it would have been hard. It would have been hard for this man to pay back this debt. 20 weeks worth of wages, again, is not a small amount. But one would assume that this first servant, having just been released from something that was truly insurmountable, would have looked at the more reasonable plea of this other servant and, and given him grace and mercy like he had just received. But if one assumed that, one would be terribly wrong. Because in the very next verse, we go on to read, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. There's something deeply wrong with this picture, isn't there? Something troubling. It's ridiculous. It's unjust. The parable continues. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the actions of this first servant are unjust. They are ridiculous. And Jesus agrees. And the point of this parable is to communicate to us. It is ridiculous. It is unjust when we withhold forgiveness, considering the debt that we have been released from. Now, something worth addressing here, and I think we can misread verse 35, is communicating that God's forgiveness is somehow contingent on our own. But if we, if we walk away with that message, then we are misreading this parable. Notice that God extends the offer of free forgiveness to the first servant before he has done a thing. That forgiveness is, is available to him. But that servant didn't truly receive, didn't internalize God's grace as evidenced by his unwillingness to forgive the small debt of the second servant. And Tim Keller again helpfully explains, Jesus' final sentence means that divine mercy should change our hearts so that we are able to forgive as God forgave us. If we will not offer others forgiveness, it shows that we did not truly repent and receive God's. See, friends, people have and will sin against us. People have and will hurt us. But the debt owed to us pales in comparison to the debt that we have been released from. When we recognize that, 
we will become people who forgive, people who are able to forgive our brothers from our hearts. I went to a seminary with a man named, uh, named Marcus, and Marcus was born in Liberia, um, and he was born pretty, pretty soon before um, the, the country was completely ravaged by civil war. And Marcus's uh, parents, his father in particular, worked for the Liberian government. Um, his dad was uh, an official with the Secret Service there. And so his family, pretty quickly after the war broke out, became targets. Um, tragically, when Marcus was nine, his mother was murdered. And then when he was 11, his father was also murdered. Uh, Marcus was able to escape. He fled to Ghana and lived in a refugee camp there for, um, for a season. But by the time he was 12, he was filled with so much rage at what had taken place that he vowed that he would one day return to Liberia and exact revenge, that he would kill the people that murdered his family. But then when he was in his 20s, something changed. And that thing was he encountered the gospel. And he recognized the debt that, that had been lifted off of his shoulders. And when Marcus was 31, he had an opportunity uh, to go back to Liberia, and, and he took it. But this time, instead of wanting to go back to exact revenge against the people that had, that had wronged him, that had, that had killed his family, he wanted to go back so that he might meet people who had, who had done injustice and, and offer forgiveness. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, he tells the story of uh, getting to Liberia and, and walking into a barber shop and struck up a conversation with the, um, with the barber who was cutting his hair. And there were about 10 other people, he said, in the barber shop with him. And they all began to listen to him. And when, it, when, uh, when he told them that he's originally from Liberia, one of the people there asked him what his last name was. And he told them, my last name is Doe. And someone else said, well, there's no one by that last, with that last name who survived the war. And so they asked him, like, how did you survive? And so he told his whole story. And pretty soon in the conversation, he found out that the men, the 10 men that were, uh, that were there in the barbershop with him were, were child soldiers at the time. And child soldiers who would have gladly, at the time, killed Marcus and his family. And that the barber who was right then cutting his hair, was a rebel, a rebel soldier. And he got to talk to them about why he was there. And he explained the, the gift of, of his own life, you know, seeing God's grace and preserving his own life. And he said that he was there to offer forgiveness to men just like them. And he said the scene was just was powerful and, and beautiful. And, and these 11 men with him, or 12 men with him and the barber, all grown men, many of whom had been soldiers, just broke down weeping. And I listened to Marcus tell... Um, tell that story. I, I got to know him in seminary, but I listened to a chapel message that he gave on this passage. 
Um, and he closed by, by saying this. He said, we can extend forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is key to living in the kingdom of God. Friends, you have been forgiven if you have placed your faith in Jesus. Right? That insurmountable debt that if we're honest with ourselves, like we're, we're all carrying around in one way or another, that debt has been canceled by the work of Jesus. It has been canceled on the cross. And it is my hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit would impress that truth on your heart, on all of our hearts, so that we can become people who forgive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of freedom, of relief from the debt that we owe you. So God, we ask that you would help us to see, to see the weight of our sin. Help us to see just how much it cost you to purchase our forgiveness so that we can more deeply celebrate the goodness of the gospel. Father, we thank you for taking the debt that we owe on yourself so that we could be freed. And God, we ask that you would apply that truth so deeply to our hearts so that we become people who forgive. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.